He's never going to fall for modern love. That's David Bowie, of course. He knew when to go out and when to stay in. That's from Let's Dance. Before that, orchestral maneuvers in the dark OMD with So In Love. Opened up with the Urban Dance Squad, Deeper Shade of Soul. Well, I also know when it's time to stay in and time to go out. It's time for me to go out of here because From the Forest is next. Thanks for being with me. Come back Monday at 10 a.m. for Monday Morning Music.
is supported by you and the following underwriters. Chappie's Good Food on Main Street in Roxbury for lunch, dinner, and cocktails. And Chappie's sister restaurant, the Old Mill Steakhouse, just around the corner on Bridge Street. Chappie's open every day. The Old Mill Steakhouse, open on weekends. 607-326-7020 or chappiesgoodfood.com. Sounds Good Music House, the record shop on Main Street in Andes for new and used vinyl, including new releases and rare titles across all genres, as well as turntables, mid-century furniture, and original artwork. Sounds Good Music House buys used records, too. Open weekends and any time of the doors open. More information at 845-676-6233, 845-676-6233, or soundsgoodcatskills.com. Watershed, Roxbury's coffee shop and market on Main Street in historic Roxbury. Open from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday through Wednesday with extended market hours until 6 p.m. Thursday through Saturday. Coffee, breakfast, and lunch in the cafe and in the market prepared meals to go in basics like dairy, produce, dry goods, beer, and cider. Watershed, Main Street at Roxbury, watershedroxbury.com and on Instagram at watershedroxbury. Franklin Stage Company, a professional admission-free theater founded on the principle that great plays should be accessible to everyone. Presenting Good People, a comedic empowerment play about trying to make the American dream come true. Apollo Seco Dance, performing contemporary flamenco. Julian Fleischer, singing original tunes and classics from the great American songbook. And Tolliver and Wakeman, a play about two colorful local characters during the Civil War. Performance dates and reservations at franklinstagecompany.org. This is Dan O'Connell, host of Monday Morning Music on WIOX Roxbury. As a WIOX spokesperson, I also manage underwriting for the station, and I'm here to let you know that underwriting on WIOX is a great way to support the station and inform the community about your business or service. If you'd like to become an underwriter, contact me for details at 607-326-3900 or WIOX at WIOXradio.org.
Okay, you're listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi, and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones. This is from the forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and Zane. Zane, how's it going? Good. Good, Ryan. How are you? All right. What have you been up to? Uh, well, I've had uh, some neat consultation recently. Uh, I walked with a member um, through their uh, old sugar bush. They didn't know they had one. Um, these trees were like 30 inches diameter or more. And uh, they explained how they, you know, it's a site really good for sugar maples. Um, they had ramps there. They harvest ramps. And they had uh, thrown down some ginseng seeds and, and got some ginseng to germinate. Oh, cool. And this was three years ago now. So we were staring down at you know, about 15 three-year-old ginseng plants covered in uh, chicken wire. Got them, got them protected from the deer. Yep. And it was that easy. He said he just bought the seeds and threw them in a spot he thought would be good, right next to a log. And, yeah, they just came right up. Sweet. So it's that easy, I guess, when you got the right condition. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of that, a lot of good conditions in the Catskills for, for ginseng. Yeah, I went out in the woods and peeled some more bark of hemlock. So, Neat. yeah, making the woods look like it's 1825 out there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I don't know, it's fun, something to do. Uh, a little bit of gypsy moth in places, especially down by, so far, the worst I've seen is Rochester Center in the town of Rochester near Accord. has some of the worst uh, gypsy moth damage, you know, defoliation of, of oak trees. But How's those trees looking? How bad? I mean, you know, it, they're, they're pretty, like, completely defoliated. That was right. the worst place I've seen it. Hmm. Yeah. They, they'll refoliate, but, you know, it'll stress them. But um, speaking of oak trees, we got a full show tonight. Uh, we're talking to the White, White Oak Initiative with their executive director, Jason Meyer. He communicates and engages with partners, stakeholders, and the board of directors of the White Oak Initiative. And let me see if I can get Jason on. Jason, are you there? I'm here. Good evening. All right. How, where are you calling from? I'm calling in from Grand Rapids, Michigan tonight. Oh, okay. Cool. How, how's, the, how's the weather there? Uh, you know what? It's smoky here. So I spent many years in California working for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, and it's reminding me of that with all the smoke in the air from Canada. Right. Yeah, a lot of that. There's a little bit of smell of uh, burnt pine in the air, even here in New York State. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It is, yeah. But it gets people talking about fire. And, um, yeah, gets we get a lot of questions about it from our members and stuff about, you know, frequency of fires and historical and all that. Not that we know as much as people out west about fires here in New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, tell us about the White Oak Initiative. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the White Oak Initiative is, well, it really started as uh, three organizations coming together and realizing that, that the future of White Oak needed a little bit of support. Uh, those three um, organizations were the University of Kentucky, Dendra Fund, and the American Forest Foundation. And uh, really what, what was happening was uh, research was showing that we have, you know, while we have plenty of white oak today to meet demand for the forest products industry and to support wildlife and so on, uh, in 15 to 20 years we're going to see a decline in, in white oak uh, 
of, of suitable size for those things. So, so the regeneration is not occurring like it used to. So those three organizations came together and basically said, you know, we should start a coalition of, of interested parties and uh, start to work on this, this looming issue that's not a crisis yet, which I think is the great thing about it. Not a crisis yet, but we definitely see from the research that we have a regeneration issue, and it's kind of nice for once to be ahead of the ball on that and uh, try to start working on it before it becomes that crisis. And, you know, b- before I ask you why we should care about White Oak, um, I guess I got ahead of myself. What got you into all this, this White Oak stuff? What, what, what landed you at the White Oak Initiative? Yeah, thanks for asking. So a uh, long time ago, I went to forestry school at Purdue uh, to get a degree in forestry so that I could spend all day, every day out in the woods, never talking to people, which I thought was just my dream job. Uh, and interestingly, 25 plus years later, I have found that every single day of my work uh, in the realm of natural resources has to do with talking to people. Um, so I spent, you know, a, a summer, it really started with a summer uh, working in Idaho with the U.S. Forest Service as a timber marker. Uh, where I ran into some folks that saw the blue paint on my boots and kind of gave me a hard time about that. And I realized at that point that I didn't have the tools to communicate about forest management the way that I would like to. And so I went back to grad school and continued that work and really got into environmental education because I started thinking, you know, uh, adults are a lot harder to, to convince about things than kids are. So let's start to teach kids about forest management and uh, the role that that plays in society. And, and long story short, what that led to was a career it was sort of two tracks. So I spent some time working as a forester uh, in the state of California, um, and I also spent quite a bit of time running nature centers in the state of Michigan. And so when uh, we had survived COVID at the nature center that I was at, I thought it's time to take a break and do something a little bit different. And that's how I ended up at the White Oak Initiative, which is actually a, a great mix of my forestry background, uh, which is a little rusty, I'll admit, after so many years being in the nature center realm, but uh, my forestry background and my nonprofit leadership experience. So uh, here we are getting ready to take the next step into the, the next chapter of the White Oak Initiative's history. And I, I feel blessed to be at the helm of that. I'm just, I'm not even three months into this job yet. So uh, I'm still learning as I go, that's for sure. Um, what, do, what do you think works, man? I mean, uh, getting through to adults about education, whether it's, you know, basic forestry or, or oak. Yeah, that's a great, you know, that's a great question. What I have found over the past couple of months is I've gone to different states and tagged along on uh, landowner uh, information days, for example, that the, the conservation districts or NRCS are putting on is that really it takes folks being exposed to it, um, exposed to ideas that are maybe a little bit different than what they got into to land ownership for. Uh, but also seeing the benefits of it. So, for example, you know, I interacted with quite a few landowners that didn't want to do anything to the forest uh, in terms of management because they loved the green trees, right? And and why change that? But once I got out on the ground and saw uh, the impact of good forest management on oak regeneration and what that meant for the wildlife that they loved um, and what that meant for the bourbon that they loved, uh, really started to open their eyes to opportunities um, in terms of, of implementing management plans on their own properties. So it just takes that exposure, I think, and, and not doing it in a thump your head sort of way, but hey, let's figure out how we can all work together to address this issue. So, um, White Oak, why why just one tree? What makes White Oak so important to create this whole initiative behind? Yeah, that's so that's a great question, and I have two answers to that. One is uh, that, that White Oak is one of those 
charismatic species, right? Um, if, if you're familiar with forests, you've seen a white oak tree and you know what an acorn is and uh, you understand that, that deer eat them and squirrels bury them and all that kind of stuff. So it's easy to recognize, um, which is a big part of that. It also has a deep and profound uh, piece of our history here in, in America uh, for everything from furniture uh, making to you know, the bourbon industry with cooperages and barrels. Um, to flooring that you see in, in people's homes. So we're, we're integrated with white oak, even if we don't think about it on a daily basis. But the other reason, beyond its, its being um, sort of that charismatic species, the keystone species as well, is that um, really what we're talking about is upland oak management, right? So if you're managing well for white oak, you're managing well for other oaks as well. Um, and so the white oak initiative really, really honed in on the white oak um, for its charismatic features. The other thing that I'll mention is, uh, you know, we, we know that bourbon needs white oak barrels uh, to age well. That's a really easy megaphone to get out there with uh, in terms of bringing attention to this. If, if you enjoy your spirits or your wine, you probably ought to be paying attention to white oak. I really like this White Oak Initiative thing. I'm uh, really attracted to it because it, it kind of it's very symbolic for what's going on in our forest right now. Mm-hmm. You know, just like you just said before, um, people just see greenery, but they don't look closer on, on what's going on um, yeah, and the cost of doing nothing. We've talked about that before. And white oak is, is kind of different than other trees. It's not like sugar maple or maybe yellow poplar down south where you can just not do anything. You, you, need, you, need, to take, you need to get your hands dirty, no? I mean, with oak? Yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing. If you don't get your hands dirty and, and take that work, your forests are turning into to poplar and maple. You know, not not a bad thing necessarily if if that's what your objectives are. But when it comes to conserving a species uh, that requires frequent disturbance, and we've entered a, a time in our society where um, you know forest management is is maybe not the top of new landowners' list of things that they want to do. Uh, we have to, we have to help educate those new landowners that it, that they need to manage their forest so that white oak can continue to be part of the ecosystem. So, what is it about white oak that is making it scarce? I guess. Why why, why do we have this? Pro- First of all, how do you know it's a problem? How do you know it's yeah, a problem? Yeah, great question. So, uh, you, if you go to whiteoakinitiative.org, there's a there's a report there called the uh, Assessment and Conservation Plan: Restoring Sustainability for White Oak and Upland Oak Communities. And that was really based on some research that, that collected data on uh, acreages across the entire range of white oak and focused on age classes. So what the data shows is that we have plenty of trees for the next 20 or 30, I'm sorry, 15 to 20 years that, that will be of uh, the size needed to, to continue to do things like make bourbon barrels. Um, but regeneration isn't occurring, right? And that's the issue with white oak and, and the lack of management is that if sugar maples and, and poplars are taking over the forest, they're shading out the, the oak regeneration. And we end up in a situation where, you know, 50 years from now, we don't have the same volume of trees growing that we have today. And, and it takes, what, so long to become merchantable size, right? Yeah, this is a really long-lived species, right? I mean, you're talking 80 to 90 years before it's ready to be to be utilized. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot, long time for people to think, right, Zane? Yeah, it's um, uh, it's I well from reading that report, yeah, it just shows how uh, I guess difficult, um, kind of unique it is to manage for for white oak given those conditions and its slow growing 
um, the way it, it produces acorns late in the year that, that need to kind of bury their roots before uh, the ground freezes. Um, how come, you know, 15 to 20 years is, it, you say it's not a crisis, but that doesn't seem too far off now, especially the way foresters think, the length, time scale they think on. Was this something that was kind of uh, well-known in, in, in the industry before it became kind of this initiative? I don't know if it was well known. It was certainly, you know, brought to attention or, or figured out longer ago than the White Initiative has the White Oak Initiative has been in place. Um, but it but it did get to that point where it's like, okay, uh, we know this is an issue. We we need to do something now, knowing how long it takes for for White Oak to grow. Um, now we're reaching that critical time to actually be proactive about it, and that's where the White Oak Initiative started. So, where's the heart of of White Oak? in the eastern United States? Yeah, so the the heart of the White Oak Range is really in that um, Appalachian, uh, you know, from from Kentucky, Tennessee, Missouri, Arkansas, that area, all the way up to Pennsylvania, a little bit into Ohio and southern Indiana, but really Kentucky and Tennessee and Missouri are where I would say the heart of the range of White Oak are. Okay, and down there you're getting maple, and yellow poplar growing even down there. You're getting maple, huh? Red maple. Yep, we're seeing a lot of red maple down there. You know, for, so for those of us from the north, we're used to seeing sugar maple. I was I was a little surprised when I was down there a few weeks ago to see red maple on the tops of the hills because that's not where we find it here in Michigan. That's amazing. Uh, are you seeing other oak species, uh, or are they? Is it just uh, oak as being that indicator species? Yeah, oak is really that indicator species. And when you think about it, uh, you know, white oak is probably the most shade tolerant of all the oaks. Uh, and even then, it's not that shade tolerant. Mm-hmm. So if we're having this issue where, you know, mesification is happening or, or things are being shaded out to the point where white oak isn't growing, then by default, all of the, the red oaks probably are already gone from that system. That's weird. You know, it's, I was reading the report and. I feel like it is a little different here in the Catskills. Red oak seems to be more shade tolerant in our area because the white oaks yeah. are already fading, and chestnut oak is the worst. It is the its crowns are the most in recession. Okay. So yeah, and I don't know if that's soil related. Maybe red oak somehow has a competitive advantage over white oak. I don't know, but our white oaks are almost always have smaller crowns at the same age class. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, and that's the other thing about you know the work that the White Oak Initiative is doing is is while we're focusing on a on a pretty big region, so to speak, we also know that the solutions are going to vary locally, right? So we can come out with overarching recommendations for the entire White Oak Range, but what gets implemented in the Catskills in terms of successful management may be completely different than what's happening in in Missouri, for example. Yeah. And, you know, we, we know the wood products is important. What about wildlife? Um, how important is, is white oak to wildlife? Yeah, that's, I mean, when you talk about a keystone species in the ecosystem, that's where white oak really fits in. And, you know, from, from a wildlife perspective, we think of things really quickly like squirrels, chipmunks, deer, turkey. Uh, but there are all sorts of other animals that depend on, on this as well. So, for example, um, Think of all the insects that are growing in the fissures of the bark, for for example, and, and the birds that rely on them. Think about the white oak logs that eventually fall on the ground and the salamanders uh, that, 
that breed under those and the box turtles that are living in the leaves. Uh, white oak is one of those species that if you if you lose it, you're losing the mast, you know, and the food the food source, but you're also losing some of those other characteristics of the tree that are critical as well. I read something the other day, you guys, that said that over 500 species depend on white oak for their survival. Huh. Amazing. Don't ask me to tell you what all those 500 are, but I was floored by that. You know, I know there's more tannins in um, oak bark and makes it a little more resistant, you know, which means it can be a, you know, a dead standing tree or on the ground like you mm-hmm. just had a longer time. Whereas maple just it disintegrates pretty fast. Right? Yeah, it just falls apart. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's show, we're talking to Jason Meyer from the White Oak Initiative, and he is calling from Grand Rapids, Michigan, huh? Yep. Pretty close to Lake Michigan. All right. So, okay, um, what if white oak, in a perfect world, what would the habitat look like where white oak would be like, all right, I'm doing good? Yeah, yeah. the perfect habitat for white oak is not the perfect habitat for a lot of other things, right? So where you find white oak growing are, are on some of those lower quality sites uh, that you typically wouldn't find the maples and the poplars uh, regenerating really well on, which is why they have the competitive, which is why the white oak have the competitive advantage on those lower quality sites. That's really where you run into the the issues is as you look at more of the higher quality sites, that's where white oak is being outcompeted. And that's where you need to take that uh, get your hands dirty approach and take, you know, do some active planning and management on your property uh, to, to help the oaks get that advantage uh, early on in their in their lives so that by the time the poplars and the maples start to catch up, the oaks already have that, you know, that advantage and they're starting to reach for the sunlight. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that, that uh, they're being overtaken by more shade-tolerant maple and uh, tulip poplar, but you mentioned it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that was happening, but, you, you know, it is a result of kind of... Um, changing land uses how landowners see the woods and and um how they recreate how how they view it in terms of what's important to them you talk about that yeah right well i think that's that's probably one of the most critical pieces of work that the white oak initiative will be doing is uh, understanding the role uh of or understanding the, the wants and desires of landowners but also helping them see the importance of, of active land management when it comes to white oak um I forgot where I was going with that. Ask, can, can you ask that question again? I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I know in the report you d- you did a survey um, where you asked uh, questions to two groups. One was just private landowners, and the other one was uh, tree farmers. And you, I think you guys divided those up because those were two distinct types of private landowners with two different sites, uh, types of goals. And you asked them kind of questions about what they. Uh, wanted land for, what was important to them about that land, and you had some kind of interesting results there. Yeah, right. Thank you. So, yep, we, we surveyed uh, about 3,200 landowners. Um, you know, some of those, as you mentioned, were tree, you know, tree farm uh, landowners, and some of them were just, you know, landowners that, that bought property for a variety of different reasons. And what the survey found was that those who are in the tree farm system um, definitely and probably obviously pay more attention to management, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the other landowners who are purchasing property, and I see this in Michigan uh, for sure, they're, they're purchasing property for recreational purposes or they're, they're purchasing property to escape the city life, so to speak, and they're not thinking about 
um, timber on their property or, or what management actually looks like. So uh, the work of the White Oak Initiative is really going to be to help educate those landowners, um, but also then connect them to the assistance that they need to, to actually manage their properties appropriately. And that's part of what the, the landowner survey showed was um, tree farmers, uh, you know, something like almost 90% of tree farmers that, that participated in the survey had gotten advice from a forestry professional at some point in the past, whereas only, uh, I, I think it was 38% of other landowners had reached out for help. Um, but the, the really nice thing about that is that when you ask the question, do you want advice in the future, those landowners that hadn't reached out um, almost doubled in the, in the yes response rate. So 60% of them are looking for, for help. And so our job at the White Oak Initiative is to say, hey, look, here are the resources available to you, whether it's reaching out to your local soil and conservation district or the NRCS for that technical assistance um, and potentially even some, some cost share opportunities like through the EQIP program um, or, or just helping them see that, uh, that hiring a professional forester, for example, um, to help come up with a management plan is probably the next best step for them on their properties. Mm. Just to clarify for our listeners, the EQIP program is the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, right, by the USDA? Yeah, correct. Thank you. And, I know, we live in a world of acronyms. Yeah, yeah I know. it. Um, and wh- how do they exactly cost share, I assume it's a cost share, uh, landowners to benefit Upland Oak or White Oak? Yeah, so if you're working with uh, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program uh, through NRCS, for example, you know, this is just one of many cost share programs, uh, you, would, you would have their forester come out and work with you on a, on a management plan. And then when you implemented that, you would be reimbursed for a, a certain percentage of the cost of doing that. And from a White Oak management perspective, that's a really important piece. So here's why. If, if White Oak are not regenerating because there's too much shade, for example, some work needs to be done to create light. The, the easiest way to do that is to go into your stand and do what's called a, a uh, mid-story removal, right? So those trees that are pole size, they're not full saw timber size. They're pole size, um, but they're shading out the understory. If, if you can go in and get those removed, uh, that's really going to help re- oak regeneration. But the problem is is that currently there aren't um, robust markets for that material, right? So that, that management is coming at a cost to the landowner that they're not recuperating um, through the sale of the materials, for example. So uh, where this cost share program comes in is it helps relieve some of that burden. In the meantime, while... Uh, the oak regeneration happens. Now, of course, those are also the landowners that we need to convince that they won't probably see the results of making money off of the oak that, that they're helping to regenerate because you're looking at 80 or 90 years down the road. So it really is thinking, as foresters do, from a multi-generational perspective. I mean, what you're describing, um, so you're saying cost-sharing the cutting of pole-sized trees because we lack those low-grade markets, right? Is that what you're saying? To benefit... Yeah, across much of the range, yep. Right. Yeah, you're describing a condition that is in the Catskills, especially in the escarpment area where the big valley meets the mountain. You have, like, right on my road, overstory of white oak, red oak, chestnut oak, and the mid-story is maple and hemlock. Yep. It is so dense, um, just no light gets to the forest floor. So... 
what you're saying is the USDA potentially would, would cost share the cutting of those unmerchantable-sized trees. First to get some light, maybe get some acorns, advance regeneration, and then maybe cut later. That How would it go from there? Yeah, exactly. So th- then that's uh, probably a few rounds of management to allow the oaks the time to, to really get going, right? So it might be... It might be that first cut to to open things up. Then you might come in again, and if there's still not enough light, maybe it's a different approach. Maybe you do, you know, the hack and squirt approach where you're using some herbicide to to remove some of those trees. And then maybe there's some prescribed fire. Every property probably will have a different management regime to get to that, that point of advanced regeneration. But those are all things that the cost share programs will help support yeah. while that advanced uh, regeneration is taking place. He talked about education, getting through to, to landowners and adults and stuff. It's like I look at your surveys there, and they reflect what's been done with the, by the USDA in the past. They want wildlife. Wildlife's, you know, head of the list, right? Right. But yet, what the disconnect is the management it takes to benefit a lot of that wildlife. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? I mean, that this is the. Pro- I feel like this is the connection we need to make as educators. We're not getting through to people, even deer well, I, hunters. Even, yeah, you're you know hitting what I mean? the nail on the head, right? If if most of our survey responses are saying that that people are buying land for uh, aesthetic purposes or for protecting wildlife habitat, it's almost counterintuitive to think about cutting down trees, right? Right. But we all know that the end result is definitely aesthetically beautiful. Um, it might take a few years, but it'll get there. And the, the enhancement of wildlife habitat, um, think about what you just described with the hemlock and, and sugar maple with nothing growing underneath. Now all of a sudden you have herbaceous plants growing on the forest floor. Um, you know, Animals can move through it a little bit differently and, and find the acorns. Um, but, but you're right, we have to make that connection between managing the forest, uh, you know, doing some of that, that tree cutting and what that means from an enhancement of wildlife habitat perspective. Yeah, and, and some people, you know, I, I can hear them, they'll say, well, the forest is natural. It doesn't need humans. <laughs> the only way to get through to those that person is to say that people did it pre-colonial. That's the only way to get through to that yeah. person. And fire kind of did that in the past. It would kill the pole-sized trees by girdling it through fire. Not always, right. not perfect, but I don't know. I, now, I, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the issues when you talk about disturbances and how white oak needs disturbance to thrive. Um, we don't allow fires to burn like they used to be. We don't really manage fire uh, probably as much as we could, for example, or use that as a tool like it was historically. Um, but we're, now we're also dealing with invasive species. Uh, issues that pre-colonial folks probably didn't have to deal with or, or the forest didn't have to deal with. Um, climate change is, is you know probably impacting some of this. So it's compounded today, right? It's not just that there aren't fires anymore, but there are all sorts of these other things stacking up yeah. that we need to figure out how to deal with. Well, let's, let, we're going to take a break here in a second, but uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest, and tonight's topic is the White Oak Initiative with Jason Meyer and 4th of July is coming up this is the last show before then so we got to play something for the birthday of uh America right right Zane hell yeah come on Beautiful. 
is coming and tonight's topic on from the forest is the white oak initiative with jason meyer so jason uh, you mentioned it sounds like fire suppression is is one of the contributing factors to white oaks um lack of regeneration and climate change perhaps and what else invasive species gypsy moth in our area i guess yep uh Gypsy moth, Japanese stilt grass, garlic mustard, you know, across the range. Moldiflora rose seems to be everywhere. It, basically, all of that stuff that's going to shade out the seedlings as they try to emerge. Um, and as we all know, invasive species, just they just take over. So you've really got to work hard on actively managing those. I, I think um, wherever absenteeism, though, goes, white, mm-hmm. oak, white oak fades. <laughs> I, I really do. I think that's... To me, that's the primary stressor. I really think that. I think well, we have still grass where I live, and um, you know, still grass is like it just seems like wherever deer are an issue, and the lack of age classes, we have still grass. I feel like it can be overcome, but we just we're just not doing anything in the woods. We're not. We're looking at it. We're hiking through it. Yeah, a lot of the invasives that we kind of tackle, they they've. Uh gotten out of hand because of neglect um because it's gotten so dense and so um difficult to walk through and, and kind of enjoy the the property that that you bought that some sort of management needs to take place so tell us a little bit about this assessment and conservation plan um this the white oak initiative put together this whole report i, I read the whole report it's a great it's a great report who was involved oh, in, in I, yeah who was involved in doing it 
and uh, it seems like it's a really a two part, right? One's an assessment, and then the the second half is is recommendations. You've nailed it. So you know the the steering committee, what used what what is now the board of directors for the White Oak Initiative used to be the steering committee, which was a little bit less um, uh, structured. But basically, the steering committee was comprised of. Uh, you know, folks that represented state and federal government. There were folks there that represented um, associations like Tennessee Forestry Association, Kentucky Woodland Owners Association, forest product industries, um, and, and of course the spirits industries all came together, um, which is kind of a cool thing when you think about it, for all of these different perspectives to come together and say, we need to, to assess the situation and come up with a plan to address it. And so the assessment piece of this was... Uh, taking a hard look across the range at, um, you know, age classes, site uh, indices and, and things like that. Um, did some spatial analysis uh, with, with a company that, that took a look at, at where things are being managed and where they're not. Collected all that data and then came up with a set of uh, forest management practices that would benefit White Oak. Um, which, you know, to be honest with you, we've probably known for quite a while, right? You, we, we've known what good oak management is, but now we've put it in a report and come up with some implementation practices that the White Oak Initiative is uh, setting the, the course for um, actually getting getting work done on the ground. And so we've taken that data, we've come up with the, and we can talk about the practices here in a second, but yep. really now what I'm focusing on as we step into this next chapter is um, how are we making sure that we're connecting those landowners uh, with the resources that they need? We talked about that. But also, how are we making sure that public lands uh, are, are being managed or that we're tracking those and learning from those? Um, we mentioned that there aren't markets for the, that uh, small pole size material or, or the, you know, sort of the crummy stuff that needs to be managed. Are there ways that this group can creatively um, find some market outlets for some of that? Uh, one of the things we're working on is, is, policy. So, for example, right now we're working hard to make sure that in the, the upcoming farm bill, uh, there's hopefully more money for forest management that will go down through some of these agencies that can help assist landowners. Um, and then, of course, just the, the education and outreach, not just to landowners, but also to foresters, also to loggers, you know, making sure that everyone who's, who's touching these properties really understands what it means to, to manage white oak appropriately. That's what's in front of us, and that's a big job, right? Um, so as we step into the next couple of years, some of, some of our goals uh, that are more explicitly stated are things like we're going to reach uh, 20,000 landowners with our educational materials. The University of Kentucky, uh, with their extension folks, have put together a great set of materials called landowner or, uh, uh, Landowners for Oaks, and basically those outline things like Here's what a white oak tree is. That's the most basic piece all the way down to here are the management practices that you should be thinking about implementing on the ground. So um, we're taking that at the White Oak Initiative. We're taking that 30,000-foot view of how we can drive good oak management forward, and then we're relying on our partners on the ground uh, to actually implement this stuff. So my job to try to coordinate all of that. Yeah, it's a big job. It's a big job. But you know what? It can be done, right? <laughs> it can be done. And what I'm finding amazing is that, uh, you know, before I took this job, yeah, I knew about White Oak and, and all that. But I am surprised as I travel around and meet with folks just how seriously people are taking this and how excited they are 
to see what the next steps are in terms of, of making sure that we turn the tide on this decline in oak regeneration. So it's, it's inspirational in a lot of ways to see the work that's happening on the ground already. Um, yeah. Of course, what I'm seeing are, I'm going to steal this phrase from someone else, but I'm seeing lots of random acts of conservation, <laughs> you know, so the bits and pieces here and there. What we would like to do at the White Oak Initiative is figure out how to make that a more cohesive and strategic approach, maybe focusing on some, you know, some critical areas first in terms of, of oak management and then using those as the models of uh, success in other areas. Yeah, and and uh, oh, is there anything to say something? Yeah, um, well, I just wanted to ask you, you know, as a as a forester, you know, working, um, uh, used to work with private landowners. What kind of lessons do you draw on from those experiences that you use to kind of implement this stuff at the higher level? Yeah, so I think that that's one of the unique perspectives that I bring uh, to this job is having been on the ground for several years, you know, interacting one on one with landowners on their properties. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I know what some of the concerns and the themes are that I had to address on a daily basis. And, and you know what? Every forester I talk to runs into the same thing. And so um, being able to connect that on-the-ground knowledge with um, how we, we make strategic goals and how we think about education and the materials that we produce, mm -hmm. uh, that's where that all comes together to, to hopefully get a good product out there that landowners, foresters, loggers, and our, and our other partners can all use. Yeah, we do the same when we're on people's properties. Um, I always try to decipher to them or contrast aesthetic impacts and resource impacts, hmm. and that, right. that usually resonates, you know, um, with people. Oh, that's just a that's just a resource impact. No, that's just an aesthetic. And okay, you know, they're not always the same. Is my point? But, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to say that chestnut. You know, you, you talked about white oak being a you know also good for upland oak if chestnut wasn't in such dire straits it would it would go really well into this white oak initiative i feel too um it's not exactly the same as white oak the silvics on it but it's very similar so once the chestnut maybe does come back and the usda and all their cohorts finally approve the transgenic maybe um we're going to be in this position regardless as well you know Chestnut's going to have a hard time growing, is my point, without some, yeah, some right. management. Right, and and that's one of the interesting things that I see for the future of the White Oak Initiative is as this takes off and is successful, uh, then it, it can also serve as a model to other um, conservation efforts, right, in terms of bringing together multiple perspectives and finding the, the educational messages that, that need to be uh sent out into the, into the communities and things like that. So you're absolutely right. Um, and, and then after the chestnut, what's next, right? There might be another species that we continue to work on this with. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is White Oak Initiative with Jason Meyer. Let's get right into the management since we only have about 13 minutes left or 12 minutes. So what are some things people can do on their land to enhance White Oak? Yeah, so... Great question. The very first thing that I would say is, unless you're someone with a you know deep knowledge and experience of forest management, probably go out there and get some help. Right, bring somebody in who's got the training to understand it, who can look at your property um, and understand 
what's going on there, help you help you understand what's going on there. So that as you develop a plan, um, it, it's coming from someone who's looking at the entire system. Uh, I'm definitely not here to, to bash loggers or anything like that, but we've all heard the stories of a landowner who gets knocked on the door by a logger um, and says, hey, I'll give you this much money if I can cut some of your trees, and they go out and do it without any thought to the rest of the system. Um, oak management is such a complex uh, management, or, or can, can be a complex management regime, that, that you need someone in there who's thinking about more perspectives than just the value of the timber you know, on the stump. Um, from there, uh, and this is stuff you can find on the White Oak Initiative website, um, there are different management techniques that can be used depending on, on what's happening there on the property. So uh, those might be anything from soil scarification. You know, go out there with a tractor and drive around and stir the soil up so that, that things can, uh, so that the acorns can get down into the soil and start to sprout. To that mid-story removal that we talked about earlier, whether it's uh, through actually cutting and removing the trees or just... Uh, you know, girdling and leaving them standing so that light can get through. Um, there's fire as part of the toolbox. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, the whole point is, for many of the places where white oak needs to regenerate, it's getting sunlight to the forest floor. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't want to get into the really technical, you know, silvicultural approaches like crop tree releases and shelter woods and all that, but that's what your forester can help you identify is, is what is the right approach for the forest that you have uh, under your ownership. Makes sense. Yeah. Are you going to say something? Well, um, yeah, so how does, uh, I guess that survey really interested me, you know, between landowners and forest farmers. Um, besides be- becoming a certified forest farmer, how does, how would a landowner have to change to become like, uh, uh, someone who's cultivating oak? on the property like what uh what do they have to learn to do what do they have to change their attitudes about the woods how would they uh uh, be an exponent of of this initiative yeah thank you that's that's a great question and i think the biggest if i was to overgeneralize the biggest change that landowners would have to have to make is going from passive to active Right. So not just sitting there and letting the forest do its thing without disturbance, but actively managing with disturbance uh, to, to help the white oak along through that process. So for a lot of people, like we talked about, that's that's a change in perception. That's a change in why they, they purchased the property. Um, or honestly, it's it's a little bit of a change from maybe what they learned in grade school. Right. And this goes back to my environmental education uh history is 